Uh, I have one thing before we start today, uh, and I, I just want to say this uh, just so we're kind of on the same page. We have a lot of people ask questions uh, recently about COVID and in-room, and uh, last week you know, we had a couple of kids' classes that were full and things like that, and people were saying, can I clap? Can you? Know, what, what can I do? We do not want to police you in any way that stops you from worshiping who God is. And if you want to stand, you want you want to clap, yes, please do that. Again, our, our job is not to do that. No, nothing can stop the worship of who God is. And we want to be able to enable you to do that by, again, honoring our county as much as possible in that. But again, we feel free to, to engage and worship with one another. Uh, I, a couple weeks ago, I had this lady, and she's like, I was the only one standing up, and I was singing, and I felt like everybody's looking at me like I was a weirdo. And I said, no, everybody else is the weirdo. You're normal. That's how I go about my life. I think, I think I'm the normal one, and everybody else is just weird. So... Worship how God calls you to worship, all right? Uh, again, you know, we our, communion's not the same as, as it used to be, but communion, how churches do communion today, is, it's, it's not a big old meal like, like it used to be either. So it, it, it is all a little bit different as you navigate this, but we want to enable you to worship God as, as much as possible. So there's that. Uh, uh, if you have a smart device, you can download this app. It's called Uversion. If you click on more and then events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smart device. Uh, if you're not in our local area, you're watching online, you can type in the zip code 934. Four five five, and we will come up, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. We even have sermon notes on the community tables throughout the room if you want to grab one of those as well. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Psalm 51, verse 4, and it says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we ask that you would take us and enable us as a people to see how you are speaking, not just to us, but into the culture around us, who you are calling us to be as your ambassadors in this world, and that we would speak of good news and the grace of who you are that we would be those who lift you up and glorify you as you bring us joy and we see and grow and know more of what you are calling us to be in this world. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going back into the series we were doing before the Lent journey through the book of Job. Uh, we're doing a series called The Greatest Story Ever Retold. Uh, we did five weeks before Job. We're doing four weeks after, kind of bookending this and bringing it together. And in doing this, we're looking at certain stories in the Bible that you may have seen or heard, but we're kind of telling it from a little different perspective and narrative. It's not necessarily to change your mind on the things that you have heard before, but really to move us to a different and deeper perspective of what God is doing in the world, maybe than we've really understood before. And hopefully, it brings us to be a people who are able to speak the gospel into our world in our ways that are tangible, because our world needs the good news. I don't know if you look around, watch the news, see things, our world really needs this. Uh, Christians are meant to be ambassadors of that good news to the world. And so often, how you see Christians portrayed in, in the media is we're just always angry and uptight. And I'm not saying there's nothing to be angry and uptight about. There, there are lots of things. But we're also supposed to be harbingers of the message of God's grace and God's hope. Too often, what we do in society is we become harbingers of morality, 
and not really harbingers of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I say this a lot. I believe that Jesus, when he changes our lives, does change our morality so we see what he wants us to see. But morality never brings Jesus. Jesus will bring morality in the end. And today's going to be a good illustration of that as we walk through the age-old story of David and Bathsheba. If you don't know about David and Bathsheba, uh, David is a king in the Old Testament and he commits adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. We're going to look at that from a different perspective that is read told. Uh, It might be a little confusing for you, and that's why we're doing this week and next week, kind of going hand in hand in how we look at this. And I even debated if I was going to talk to you about these things today or not, because it's almost a left turn coming out of Job. But your element, you're used to that because I'm ADD and I'm like, squirrel. So that's, we're kind of squirreling this. So... Give you a heads up, uh, I'm going to borrow very liberally from a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes today, and it's one of the few books I remember a lot of the stuff in it. I read a lot of books, but I remember a lot of the stuff, so I made a lot of notes, and this kind of comes out of that. It's a good sermon. You can blame it on those guys. If it's bad and I, Charlie Brown it, it is totally uh, my, my fault in that. So much of what we need to look through when we look at the Scripture is understanding how it was written. The Scriptures were written into what was called a communal or an honor and shame culture. Now, you contrast that with us as Americans. As Americans, we live in what's called an individualistic culture. We have uh, personal rights. Uh, You don't tread on my rights, or there are things like civil wars and civil disobedience and all of these kind of things. Uh, An individualistic culture tends to look at things in a right and wrong lens, in a guilty versus innocent lens. Like, we raise our kids today to be mature enough to know the right from the wrong, and you do the right thing. Uh, What we even try to do today in uh, redefining what sin is, is we do it in the idea of everyone has to define what's right or wrong for themselves. We keep coming back to that idea. Now, in an honor and shame culture, it's not individualistic like that. Uh, Now, there are rights and wrongs and mores and norms and all that kind of stuff, but you don't necessarily do them because it's right and wrong. You do what's right because of how it looks from the outside, how other people will view your family or your village or your city from the outside. Uh, As an example, in the book, they talk about in Indonesian culture. Uh, It's an honor and shame culture, and there's a story of a woman whose husband was caught in adultery, much like David and Bathsheba. But the woman was more concerned, not that her husband had committed adultery, but in her words, there was no uh, place for her to out her face. In America, we see things like, uh, I want to save face, save my reputation. She felt like she had nowhere to go because now everybody was judging her and her family for these things. No place to put her face. That was the bigger deal. In our culture, we act right because it's pressed upon us. We have this inner heart conscience. But in honor and shame society, you do what's right because of what others might think. Are you following? Okay, good. Good. First service, I said that, and fully two-thirds of them were like, what? I said, listen to the podcast tomorrow. Hopefully you'll get it. Uh, you go back uh, to the ancients, like even ancient Greece starts off as like this honor and shame culture. They did what they right because everybody was watching. Uh, ancient Greeks would have loved like the Lord of the Rings. And I said this last service, people were like, oh, here we go, geeking out. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, you have this ring that's called the One Ring of Power. What happens when you put it on? You go invisible. Sauron also sees you and comes to try and kill you, but you also go invisible. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you could go invisible? Would everything you do be godly? Nope. You, you, would, you would find like uh, maybe that bully that picked on you or that date that treated you bad or I'd go and find all the best cookies and steal them. Uh, if there's a Backstreet Boys reunion tour, I would sneak in and then unplug the soundboard. It, it'd be awesome. <laughs> 
But Greeks would have loved that idea if you could go invisible and do anything you wanted to do. Uh, the ancient philosopher Plato said, No man can be imagined to be of such iron nature that he would stand fast in justice when he could safely take what he liked. And the idea is that ordinary people don't do what is right because it's right. They only do it because other people are watching. And Plato almost really sets up the world for the right and wrong, good, bad culture that we have today. Because he said we should all find the inner motivation to do what is right, even though he doesn't think that any of us actually have that. And in our culture today, we kind of put everything into those two categories of right and wrong. Again, Plato would love that. And so we look around the world and we define what is good and, and what is bad. And we can argue about what is good and what is bad, but we still use those two different conditions. Containers. And so the book that I referenced, uh, the authors are American in this, and he talks about how he tries to teach his son to know the right thing and do the right thing and to stand up for the good because of what God is calling us to individually. He has a Chinese friend, though, who teaches his son to live in harmony, to blend in and listen to what the entire group is saying. As Americans, we teach our kids, be unique, don't be like the crowd. The Chinese have a proverb, though, that says it's the tall poppy that gets cut down. That's not just in terms of how the government takes anybody out who lifts their head too high. It's the idea that you don't lift your head above the rest of your society. And both fathers want their kids to know what is right and do what is right. But one is told to listen to your heart, and the other is told to listen to their community, and they're both Christians. Again, you see the difference in that. In Western culture, and we do wrong, we typically have to deal with our consciences, what our hearts are saying. We feel bad about this given thing, even if nobody else knows. But in an honor and shame culture, you do right, mainly because it's what society is pushing you towards and what it, what it expects. And so even many times, rules and laws are less of a deterrent than bringing shame on your family. Uh, years ago, we used to do these things uh, called police blotters. And police blotters would write down, like, if you got busted for something, you go in the police blotter, everybody would read it and be like, <gasps> shame. Like, uh, so-and-so stole a hammer from Ben Honeycutt's hardware. It used to be the ace, but now it's Ben's, you know, down there. And, oh, my goodness, look at what he did. How terrible was that? You never wanted, you never wanted to get caught doing something like that because of the shame that would come upon it. Now we don't do police blotters anymore because we're afraid to hurt people's self-esteem. Whatever. <laughs> Sometimes it needs to happen, I think. But uh, also, uh, certain police officers don't even like police blotters because it almost trivialized some of their police work because of some of the calls that they get. Like, true, true story. Police have gotten called because people have said, my neighbor is shining a bright light in my house. Can you do something about it? The cops show up and it's the moon. So it's like, okay, there you go. Uh, but there is a difference in this. Now, there's no hard and fast distinction between the two because they do come together a little bit, but we have to understand that how the scripture was written was into a different culture than we have today. I'll give you one last example before we hit David and Bathsheba. In 2004, uh, this tsunami hits Indonesia. Uh, most of you probably remember that. Uh, this huge tsunami comes in. Uh, the hardest area hit was a place called Aceh. Uh, they're, they're very isolationist people. They did that to protect themselves from Western influence. But when the tsunami hits, all these Westerners come flooding into this place because they want to help. And it was great for a while. But after a few months, the Achenese government start looking at this and they say, oh, our people are now uh, being fearful of the Western influence that is coming on around us. So in order to protect their people, they said, we want all Westerners out in three months. 
in three months. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, the guys who wrote the book were talking to the people in the government, and they didn't actually want the foreigners to leave. They didn't expect the foreigners to leave. As a matter of fact, the defense minister said they'll be here as long as they need to, but they said it in order to save face, to look like they were trying to take care and, and help their people. Uh, when they say this out loud, everybody saves face because the right thing was said, even if the demand wasn't followed. And I know it, it doesn't make sense to us at all. It's confusing. But the whole idea of honor and shame and what constitutes that many times for us as Americans is hard to keep straight. Uh, shame is not even always a negative in an honor and shame culture because shame can actually be a good thing because it indicates that you know the right thing you're supposed to do, how to behave. Like if you didn't have shame, you would be shameless, like, like that TV show. Uh, how we view morality, uh, immorality, is going to kind of skew how we look and read the Bible. Uh, and like today, in Western society, when we talk about coming to know Jesus, what do we say? We say, uh, we've crossed God, we've rebelled from who He is, and God is reaching into our hearts to call us back to Himself. And, and all that is actually true. In Jesus, John 16 promises the Holy Spirit who could come and convict the world of sin. But when we hear that, we think, convict my own heart and my life of sin. Uh, we don't see it as being external. But the beauty of how God works in honor and shame and this innocence guilt culture is that God works in both those ways as the Holy Spirit convicts us all. Uh, most scholars will actually point out today that this uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit in a lot of the biblical characters was an external external, an external coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, uh, you know, this is what God is calling you to, which is really what is going to happen in the David and Bathsheba narrative we look at. You can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, interesting, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, God sends the prophet Nathan to David, external source, to convict David of his sin of, of adultery. Uh, we typically think that David was just hard-hearted, not listening to the sin in his life, but David probably didn't even think about it at that point, which kind of just blows us away, because as Westerners, we tend to be introspective, but that's not a trait typically of Old Testament culture, which sometimes leads to text being confusing. So we're going to do the David and Bathsheba story retold. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, and that line always makes me laugh. It's like, is it on the calendar? Oh, it's springtime? War. I mean, that's just weird. When the time of kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So David has now been king for a little bit of time. He's consolidating his territory, bringing things together. And what it's telling you here is though something isn't right. Uh, all these people are going out to battle, but David is not going with them. In an honor and shame culture, this would have been seen at the beginning of this as being dishonorable. David is not where he is supposed to be. Uh, chapter 11, verse 2. It happened, and this is a story that when it was written down, Israel would have known what it was, so it's just it. They all know what it is. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. What we tend to overlook in the narrative is that women typically don't bathe where other people can see them. And so commentators, when they look at this, they conclude that Bathsheba is most likely, because it's what the text 
almost tells us, is engaged in a ritual cleansing after her menstruation cycle. It sets up ovulation because Bathsheba is going to get pregnant. And while the text sets it up that what she's doing is a very Israelite thing, it never tells you Bathsheba is an Israelite. as She's married to a Hittite, which is a foreigner. And what it is, it's speaking of this honor and shame culture, because even if they weren't Israelites, because of that culture, they were following the customs of the culture that they were in. Uh, ritual cleansing does not usually take place at night. Late afternoon would be after 6 p.m. And in this place, in this time of the year, that would mean in order for her not just to see herself take a bath, but David to see her, there would have to be enough lights in order to display that. Uh, Anyone have a house where your neighbors can look out their window into your backyard? Yeah, you don't do things in your backyard that the neighbors can see that you don't want them to know about. It's like you don't pick your nose at a red traffic light. You just don't do it. So Bathsheba is aware her rooftop can be seen from David's balcony. In that day, people were aware of their proximity to power. I know it's so different today, but in that day, that was true. And anybody would have been skeptical if Bathsheba would have said, Oh, I didn't know the king can see me. Is that his balcony? Not that what all takes place is Bathsheba's fault at all. David makes his own decisions. But really, it's, it's kind of the setup of what's taking place here. So David likes what he sees. He inquires about her. Chapter 11, verse 3. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, in an honor and shame culture, this is an honor and shame response. The servant responds this way because it would be shameful for the servant to know something that David didn't. And so, he says this in a way that's a question. So, David could go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I I knew that. Everyone saves face. So what David will do is he will bring her over, they will sleep together, and she will get pregnant. And we tend to think, "Uh uh-oh, David's now in trouble. How's he going to hide this? But that's probably not the point, because David is king, and he could really have just paid Uriah for Bathsheba. It's how a lot of cultures worked in that time. You see the influence of other cultures upon Israel. But David apparently doesn't want another wife or another concubine. What he wants is to save face. In our cultural view, we see a privacy that is not necessarily intended in the text. Like, this is hidden, and it wasn't. Because David asks about her publicly. He sends servants, plural, to go and get her. She comes over. Everyone's probably talking about it. The conflict is actually going to come about between Uriah and David and between David and God. Because after this moment, the text no longer refers to her as Bathsheba. It refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Uriah is seen as the victim of the story and is pouring shame upon David. Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. The term return to her house is very generous and nice in, in the English translation here, because it literally means she was sent home. And you're talking about an honor and shame culture, this is literally the walk of shame. Right there. David shamed the wife of Uriah, and in so doing, he shames himself. Verse 5, Bathsheba will send a thing to David and says, I'm pregnant. What are we going to do about this? It is also public news. So David then will send for Uriah from the battle. Chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. That is also public. It's also public. Servants go, this guy guy comes back. People who write about Near Eastern culture and all this, they say David is bringing Uriah back to let David off the hook. If Uriah comes home and spends one night in his house, the baby will be considered his. Even though everybody knows it's not, it will technically then be his and everybody saves face. 
honor would then be restored between Uriah and David, even though Bathsheba in this was also dishonored. And don't get me wrong, I think it's a travesty that Bathsheba was sent away like this, that David could seemingly get out of it. But, the, but David's concern, not the text, the text's concern is about the sin and what God does to bring people back to him. But David's concern is not necessarily adultery is right or wrong, but can he save face? in this culture. So Uriah comes home. He's probably heard all the gossip and all the rumors. His house is located very closely to the palace, which means he's probably got some connections. Why is a common soldier having dinner with the king? So he shows up, finds out what's going on. Verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. It's chit-chat. How you doing? It's surface talk. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So in this, this is, hey, go down, wash your feet, see your wife, here's a great thing, and here's a present to go with you. In this honor and shame culture, it tells you what David is doing. He sends Uriah home with a present, a gift. This is like monetary of some sort to let David off the hook. And for some reason, it could have been love, uh, it could have been the gift wasn't big enough, I'm going to be romantic, I will go for love. Uh, Uriah refuses the bribe. Uh, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. He stays with the servants. He does not go home. Verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Everybody at this point is knowing that Uriah is not letting David save face. He's not letting David off the hook. And what David is going to do is have another dinner with Uriah and a soldier being invited to the king with the king a second time. That is now a veiled threat. I told you to go home and you didn't go home. You can just sleep with your wife and let me off the hook. And this is where you see Uriah is angry. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That's tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah heaps shame upon David in three ways. Number one, he says everyone, including God himself, represented by the ark, is on the battlefield. Everyone is supposed to be, everyone is where they're supposed to be except for you, David. Secondly, Uriah points out that Joab Joab is on the field commanding all of the troops, which is technically David's job. You're not where you're supposed to be. And then Uriah pointedly says he knows what David wants, to lie with my wife? And he's like, I'm not going to cooperate. So then what will happen in the text is David tries to get Uriah drunk, get him to pass out. If he passes out, I can just throw him in his house. And then it'll be like, oh, well, you went home. You didn't realize it, but you did. And then everybody would save face, but he doesn't pass out. Now, if you look earlier in David's life, David doesn't do anything to dishonor who God is. He wants to serve and, and worship God. There are places where the previous king, Saul, wants to kill David, and David has the opportunity to take Saul out, and David doesn't do it. He doesn't act dishonorably. But now that he feels like his reputation is on the line, he starts to act dishonorably. And David will send Uriah back to the front line, and then he will tell Joab to make sure you put him in a place where he will die. And so Joab starts this battle. And in the middle of this battle, he besieges the place of the city that was really dumb, and he sends Uriah over there. These other people back away from it, and Uriah dies. And Joab says, you're going to go and tell David what happened in this battle. He's going to be really mad because we attacked a stupid part of the city. But as soon as he gets mad, I want you to say, verse 21, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David stops. He's like, oh, okay. David's shameful act not only in the end gets Uriah killed, but other good men as well. 
So let me try to explain this a bit based on this culture. First, the text really gives no indication that David felt any inner remorse for the act of adultery and even later seemingly to get Uriah killed because his honor is restored. He gets to save face. Secondly, Bathsheba will move in to the palace. She'll become a wife of David because it's his baby technically anyway. Third thing is Bathsheba almost got what the text indicates she wanted all along to become a wife of the king. And fourth, the only person to really suffer is Uriah. And David probably again thought it was Uriah's own fault because he failed to play along. How's that for a retold narrative? Right? It's a little bit different. A little bit different. David, in his mind, makes Uriah a fair offer. Every step of the way, David acted like a typical fashion of a, of a Near Eastern Mediterranean king at the time in the honor and shame system. Everyone really is going to be okay with it in the end as long as all the stuff kind of dies down and people quit talking about it. And this is why people say the Bible is hypocritical. They say, well, David is called a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Look at this. It's because we don't understand what God is doing in the Scriptures or the purposes of why they're written. The Scriptures show us that all of us are jacked up. Every single... I'm a man after God's own heart. And look what you did. The Scriptures shows us our sin, but also the gracefulness of God. Because in the text, there is someone who isn't happy about any of this, and that's God Himself. Chapter 11, verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. That son actually will die. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You read that and you think, well, displeased, that's not, that's not really, God should be more angry than displeased. The word displeased there in the Hebrew literally means trembled in anger or sadness. God is, I think it's both, trembling and anger and sadness about what takes place here. Because no matter how everybody felt about it, God was not okay with it. There are even things in our culture today that everybody might be okay with, but God is not okay with it. God trembles about those things. And so what God will do is He is going to step into the middle of this. Now, in an honor and shame system like this, when something gets swept under the rug and it's done with, you don't bring it back up. Anybody have families like that? Something that happens, you sweep it under. We're not talking about it. It's all done. So what God does is he works into this honor and shame culture an element that allows him to speak in this, and that's his prophets. And his prophets show up. And every time Israel doesn't want to talk about their sin and what's going on, God's prophets stand up and go, Oh, no! We're talking about it! Do you have somebody like that in your family too? We're not talking about it. Oh, we're talking about it! It's like, ah. Uh. This, this is why, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets were constantly killed, and nobody liked them. Because it's like, no, 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 we're done with it. We're sweeping that under the rug. And it's like, oh, no, you're not. Well, you're dead. You know, kings would try to take out prophets all the time. So God works prophets into this to stand up in the midst of this. Um, instead of God whispering to David's heart like he does to our consciences, God is going to shout in David's face through the prophet. Uh, Brandon O'Brien writes this, Since David's culture used shame to bring about conformity, God used shame to bring David to repentance. So in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, you will see other places uh, where Nathan is considered to be a friend uh, of David, but Nathan is also a prophet, and Nathan steps into the middle of this, and it's been a year since it happened. Okay, so it's been a year, and it's been swept under the rug, nobody's talking about it, and if Nathan just walked up to David and said, dude, you did this, stupid you, it's wrong, then David probably would have just you know, cut him out and said, I'm not listening to this. So what Nathan does, speaking to this culture, he does an amazing thing. He tells this story, and he says, David, there is this guy. He's got rich, got lots of money, tons of livestock. He's kind of a jerk, though, but, you know, he's got everything he thinks he wants. And then there's this poor guy. 
And this poor guy, all he has to his name is this one little ewe lamb. And he and the ewe lamb are buddies. They go everywhere together. It's like a boy and his dog, but it's a boy and his ewe lamb. And they, go, and they go everywhere together. And when it's cold at night, they lay down together, stay warm together. It's a beautiful little story. Well, one day, the rich guy has some friends over. And the rich guy doesn't want to take any of his livestock. And because he can and has power, he walks over and takes that poor guy's ewe lamb and butchers it and feeds it to his friends. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Makes you angry, right? You know, David is like, that dude deserves to die. How dare that guy do that? Chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan says, you are that man. You are that man. That's what you did, David. You got all these wives and concubines that you take Uriah's. What are you thinking? And this is one of the reasons, I think, why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because once David's sin is exposed in this way, David is like, I, I deserve to die. I deserve to die. I see what it, David's heart, it melts here. He stops being so self-righteous and everything kind of comes back to the place where he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. It's like God almost uses this right, wrong, innocence, guilt, cultural ethic to confront David's honor and shame ethic. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. This is uh, part of the verses I had you stand for at the very beginning. When Nathan tells David this truth, David's heart, it completely melts. He deserves, thinks he deserves eye for what, what he has done. And in verse 13, Nathan will then say, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. David's like, I deserve to die. And Nathan's like, yes, you do deserve to die. But God is offering you grace. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5, this is written after this event. This is what David says. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, when we read this, it might look a little odd to you, because didn't David also sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab and all the soldiers that got killed in that stupid battle? There are lots of things David sinned against, yet he confesses his sin from his birth. Why not a moonlit night when I'm walking on the balcony and staring at a naked woman? Why doesn't he confess that? Because, again, it's the cultural mindset of this. David realizes that, yes, all these sins that I've done are outworkings of what is actually wrong in my heart from my birth. I am sinful, and I need God to rescue me. Because we are people in our lives, and we, we do a lot of stupid things in our lives. We really do. But what's the core of that? The core of that is we start in a place where we are brought forth in, quote-unquote, iniquity and sin. And we need God not just to take care of these sins out here, but to take care of our own hearts, what is going on in here. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This, this whole story, it really shows that God is capable of speaking into any culture to bring people back to Himself. God can work through an innocence and guilt culture. God can work through an honor and shame culture. And I think, personally, once we understand them both, they work better coming together like this. So I want to show you how this works in the New Testament. Uh, when, when Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die, this is in a reference to judgment, the day of the Lord. Now, when Paul writes in the New Testament, there's also this thing called Judgment Day that Paul talks about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now think about that. How does that make you feel? How would that make David feel? Like, 
Like, you're right. I'm, I've got to pay for my own sin. I've got to take care of that. In American culture, we hear these words, and we think it's like we've got a big video screen, and God is showing all of our sins on the big video screen to everybody else. We're like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. But we really only see it as a few moments of having to get through it, and once we're done, okay, I get to be like the Jeffersons and move it to my deluxe apartment in the sky for eternity. Okay, I'm done through it. In honor and shame culture, though, that would have brought people to their knees. They'd been like, oh my goodness, everybody's going to know what I've done, my shame that's here. Paul here is actually applying this motivation to the Corinthians to live a life worthy of the call of Christ. But this isn't a fear motivator. Paul is actually walking them somewhere. Yes, if we stand before God on our own, we are completely lost. We are lost. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul walks to this argument and then he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is like Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin and your shame. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, that's their shame, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. When we understand what God has done for us, when we are not standing before God based upon our own merits and our own life, we understand what Christ has done, and we get to speak like Nathan did. God has put away your sin. God has brought you to himself. God is good. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if you're still unsure about the fear versus grace motive, verse 21, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we are told. We don't stand before God in our own righteousness, in our own works. We actually have the righteousness of Christ as we stand before God himself. That's who we are. And I think this is what all those scriptures in the Old Testament are pointing towards. We have all messed up, but our focus in our lives should not be on how much we've messed up. The focus in our lives should be on what Christ has done for us. Because whether you're in an honor and shame culture or a guilt and innocence culture, that is the way that brings hope and humbleness to our lives, no matter what type of culture we ascribe to. That our God has put away our sin in Christ. And not just that, we now get to be the Nathans who proclaim that good news to the world. Because if you get everybody in this world to agree with you on every little minute thing of, of politics and how the world should work, that doesn't bring salvation. What brings salvation is who Christ is and what He has done for us. This is what the Scriptures point towards. And when you see all these hypocritical things in the Bible of God's people doing the dumbest things, God's like, exactly, people do the dumbest things. And I have stepped into the mess. And I have rescued. And I have put away your sin and shame. Trust in Christ and you stand in that righteousness before me. And that is meant to humble us. So we live our lives lifting up who He is in everything we do. And that changes how we interact with people. And that changes how we speak about the good news to the world. This is why at Element, every week, we talk to you guys about communion. And I get it. You know, communion is, is weird in a little self-sealed container cup. But we still don't do it like they They would do a big old meal every time they had communion to remember what Christ did. But the point of this is to come to the place to remember that our righteousness is found in Christ alone. It's, it's we take communion to remember what Christ did, that our righteousness is found in Him. We trust that. We live in that. We don't find it in ourselves. And so when you take communion, you break that cracker and you drink the, the grape juice that's in there, it's not the greatest. We get it. 
But it's the idea to understand, to come back, to understand what Christ did to rescue us. Jesus says, you do these when you do, in remembrance of who I am. I mean, our job isn't to sit here and, and judge the cups. <laughs> we get it. But our job is to come back and remember, yes, I'm remembering what Christ did for me in this moment as I sit before him. Our righteousness is found in him alone. I'm going to invite the band back up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion at some point. When, when you feel like God is leading you to go and do that, and maybe it's not even right now. Maybe it's after we're done. You take it home. You do it at home. Maybe you're driving home in the car. Don't close your eyes when you're driving. You know, but maybe it's there. But allow God to lead you in those places in that. Uh, we, we want to be a people who also enable you guys, if you would like, you know, to pray with somebody. Today. I mean, maybe, maybe you're in a place where you feel like, I have to figure this out. I'm going to stand on my own merits before who God is, and it is just undoing you. People who live like that, they, they think they have this fear motivation in their life of how they're trying to follow God. And it's sad. Because God never calls us to be a people who just run around thinking we've got to figure it all out. God steps into our life, calls us back to Himself. God does the work in our lives through Christ so that we get to live in hope and freedom. And if you've never experienced that and you would like to, uh, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. We'll uh, pair you up with somebody to pray with you this morning because we'd love to be able to pray about that. Uh, I love saying this since we're together again is that there's offering boxes next to every door. We do not pass a plate at Element. It, everything that we do is meant to be response to what God has done. So don't pass a plate. It's, it's God leads you to do that. We do all these things after the message, do a couple extra songs and communion and prayer and this reflection because we want to take some time to get a little bit of sacred space where we are, to listen to what God is saying as we walk out of this place and we live our lives throughout the week honoring who He is in all things. Uh, I would also encourage you to grab some of the sermon notes either on your phone or with you, and talk to some people through that throughout the week about some of those questions. I mean, I think a, a great question is, you know, trying to see the difference around the world between honor and shame and innocence and guilt culture and how those things comes to, come together. If you want to, you can watch the talking element this week. Uh, Mike and Michael and I kind of talk through some of that stuff on that, on that video. Uh, but it's really to come back to understand that God is calling us all to himself, no matter what kind of culture we're in. God brings us to himself because he himself is good. And we get to be the messengers of that good news. But the way we become the messengers of that is we live in it. We find this hope and joy and life that comes from Christ's life in us. Let us be a people who speak of the good news of the gospel and how that changes everything. Let's be those joy-filled people in the world that speak of God's hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would take us And lead us in the ways to better understand who you are and what you have done. It almost seems like that whole Job journey was to lead us to the place where we understood who you are better. And then we look at stories like like this, where quite frankly we are horrified by some of the decisions of people in the scriptures. But I think if sometimes we looked at our lives from the outside, we'd be horrified at some of our own decisions as well. And this is why we are humbled and undone. Because we are not saved because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. And I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust that, who believe it more than just an assent with our heart, but we believe it with our minds as well. And so that whatever comes into our lives, it's filtered through the gospel 
of the good news of your rescue of us. And then we would in turn begin to live differently in this world. Not just as individuals, but as a corporate body of people who love you because you have first loved us. Who bless those around us because you have first blessed us. That we would step into this world and be those harbingers of your good news individually and corporately. As we understand greater your salvation given to us. Teach us to live out our lives in ways that bring you glory. Because when you are glorified, your people live in joy. And have us be those who live in that joy. Again, individually and corporately as a people. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for not counting our sins against us. Thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus. Have us live out, again, the great salvation we've received. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.